pulpit today as Lucas is away, and it's great to be back here at the, my home church. I uh, have been away working with a few of the other churches in our network, so I'm glad to be back today, and it's really good to see you. If you've been following along in the series through Proverbs, uh, you'll remember, I imagine, uh, Proverbs 1-7, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and knowledge. They despise it, they hate it, they want nothing to do with it. And if we think about wisdom for what, as, as the Hebrews thought of it, uh, they thought of it as having skill for living. Skill. That's what the original language talked of, having skill for living. We can each have skill for living, but there's something uniquely special about being in, re- in relationship with the Lord that gives you a, an insight through His Holy Spirit of how to apply the Scriptures to real life to have unusual skill for living. And so today we're going to be in Proverbs 30. You might want to turn there. Please turn there. Proverbs 30 is written by an older man. You'll remember that the early chapters of Proverbs is written by um, a person who's talking to a younger man, a younger person about how to live this life. Well, in Proverbs 30, we come uh, to an author who has a few years on the tires. Uh, He's been around a while, and he's got a few observations. He's pretty hard on himself. So when we ask the question, or think of the question of the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction, if the first step is the fear of the Lord, the trembling fear of an awesome God, what comes next? I think Proverbs 30 gives us an indication of what comes next. It's a stark assessment of yourself. A stark assessment of yourself. Stark, it's, it's unvarnished, it's crisp, it's to the point, it's direct, it can be very blunt. And until you have a stark assessment of yourself and your condition before the Lord in your natural state, you're going to have a hard time coming to wisdom coming to have the skill for living that you really want to have, that the Lord wants you to have. It's the stark assessment that drives you to pursue living in accordance with God's design for life. So the title of today's sermon is A Stark Assessment Drives Wisdom. It pushes it forward. Stark overview of your life that drives you to skill for living under the umbrella understanding of how God works and what God wants. There are 33 verses in this chapter. I'm doing the whole chapter. We're going to walk through it together. And I thought it best to uh, divide the chapter into five different chunks of verses. So we'll ask five questions that ultimately discuss this stark assessment piece. Five questions and five answers, okay? You ready to go? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this beautiful morning. Your mercies are new every morning, and sometimes... You overflow abundantly more than we could ask or think, and we're thankful for those days like today as well as all of the others, Lord. So I pray that you would help me to speak clearly, to rightly divide your word, help these people to listen with open and warm hearts, soft hearts, Lord, so that they may and we together apply your word properly to life. We ask this under the headship of our great and great Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. A stark assessment drives wisdom. Here's the first question that I think stems from the the writer. How do you gain wisdom? How do you gain wisdom? Well, the first three verses, how do you gain wisdom? Here's the answer. Before we read it, here's the answer. You acknowledge your natural condition and situation. Acknowledge it, recognize it, ponder it, acknowledge it. 
By the way, who here is not using the ESV version of the Bible? If you're not using ESV, is everybody using ESV? Okay, great. Then I don't have to deal with this issue. ESV, ESV has a unique uh, way of describing, of, of including cha- uh, verse 1 of this chapter that other good versions that we use do not include. And it's okay if you want to talk about it with me later, that's fine. We can do that. It's got to do with Hebrew language and consonants and vowels and oral tradition versus written communication. It's all esoteric. It's all difficult, and we don't need to cover it. Don't lose confidence in your scriptures. It's all fine. It's a a matter of translation. So verse 1, let's read the first three verses of Proverbs 30. The words of Agur, son of Jekah, the oracle. The man declares... I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. How do you gain wisdom? You acknowledge your natural condition and your situation before a holy God, who's not a a real smart man. He's totally different from us. You acknowledge your condition before him. That's how you gain wisdom. You acknowledge your natural state. He, 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 this is an older man, as I said before. He declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. I'm tired. Now, we don't know exactly what he's tired about, but we have a few educated guesses, I think, that you can glean from the text as we go forward. But just to say, I think what he's tired of is trying to figure out how to live this life on his own. He does love the Lord, as we'll see In subsequent verses, he knows God, he loves God, but he's tired, perhaps, of the fight. He's tired of trying to figure it out. He acknowledges his condition before the Lord, as I said, his natural state. He's very hard on himself in verse 2. He's tired, and he says, I am too stupid to be a man. I'm not better than an animal. Very harsh, very harsh. On his own, he's too stupid to be a man. He's got an assertion. He says, I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, which is interesting because... By saying that, he's making the argument that wisdom can be learned over time. But remember, he's an older man. He's looking back on his life and perhaps his current condition, and he says, I failed to learn things I should have known a long time ago. I have not learned wisdom. Not only that, I don't have knowledge of the Holy One. So the proof of the assertion that I'm stupid is that I don't have adequate knowledge of who God is so I can live with skill. Wisdom is skill for living. Maybe he's being hard on himself. Maybe he's being harsh with himself. But that's a really good place. That's a really good place to gain an understanding of your condition and let God work with you to bring you to a better place. You might want to compare your own situation and what we listen to in the world about what people think about how they are living and how smart they are. Maybe not so smart. Let's move on to verse 4 and the second question. How do I get wisdom? I don't mean receive it. I mean understand it. I don't get that. I don't understand that. But how do I get wisdom so that I understand its source and what it's about? And the answer from verses 4 to 9 is that you see and recognize God's awesomeness. You see and recognize God's awesomeness. He's, uh, in the first three verses, we saw a man who's tired, and he's weary, and he's worn out, and he's understanding his natural condition is not strong at all in spiritual matters and in the application of wisdom. He doesn't understand it, but how do I get it? How do I understand it? You recognize and see God's awesomeness. Verse 4. This is verse 4 through 9. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? 
Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? Surely you know. Ooh, let's stop there for a moment. I had the privilege and uh, the opportunity of, to visit Carlsbad Caverns recently in New Mexico. Have you ever been there? Carlsbad Caverns. It's unbelievable. I just saw it on the map, and I thought, oh, I'm going to go see this national park, Carlsbad Caverns in, in uh, New Mexico. Um, it's in the desert. There's um, mountainous ranges around there. But I, I went there, and um, to get to the caverns, uh, you either take an elevator 750 feet down, straight down. That's 75 stories, right? You take an elevator, or you can walk a mile and a quarter uh, descending, a mile and a qu- uh, descending uh, into the depths of the, where the caverns are. 75 stories. I chose the elevator. So you get out, you get out, and um, you see different things that the government has set up to help us uh, enjoy the caverns. But once I get beyond that, I have never been more awestruck in my life. The caverns are about 120 cave, 120 caves or so, and they are immense. They're about 75 stories or 75 feet high, 75 stories high. And there's, the one is the big room, they call it. It's a mile, almost a mile long. And there's these caves you walk through. And um, I felt like I was in a theme park. But remember, God made this with his feet up. He, was, he just said, I think I'll make these caverns in creation. I think I'll make this, and nobody's going to see it. Maybe a few people of ancient times saw it first. But he made these caverns. I was walking down the trails, and I was so awestruck. And I, I was walking by a man who was taking photographs. And I, I said, I, can you believe this? You know, God just made this out of nothing. He just said, I think I'm going to make this. This is what it is. And he kind of grumbled at me. And I don't know what he was saying, but, you know, a crazy Christian or something. But he said, uh, so he said, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I was so awestruck. You see, that's part of understanding your situation before God. And you see God's awesomeness in creation. And this is just underground. You would never know it was there. It was discovered by settlers. I know Native Americans had discovered it years before. But uh, in our country, in 18... Uh, uh, 33 or something of that sort in the 19th century, mid-19th century, a young man found it. So let me ask a question again with that as a backdrop. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? That's an Old Testament reference to Jesus Christ himself. Jesus said when he was talking to Nicodemus in John 3, 13, he said these very words, that he himself has ascended to heaven and has come down. It's an Old Testament reference to Jesus himself. Who has gathered the wind in his fists? When Billy Graham was asked by a smart aleck reporter, have you ever seen God? Have you ever seen God, Billy, big man of God? And Billy Graham said, no, no, I've never seen God. But I've never seen the wind either. I've never seen the wind. I've seen the effects of God, just like you see the effects of the wind. But I've never seen God. There's a mystery to him. In the same way, who has gathered the wind in his fists? Well, the Lord God has, the triune God. John 1.3 speaks of the Lord's, the Logos, the, the pre-incarnate Christ at the core of creation. Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Probably a reference to clouds holding water. He's asking who questions, obviously. Who has established all of the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? Surely you know. Uh, no, you don't. No, you don't. 
All these smart people we have who don't know Jesus as Lord, who don't know the Lord himself, they don't know. They may think they know. They may try to convince you they know and that you're stupid and they're smart, but they don't know. God knows, and he's revealed to us in the Scripture much of what he is and who he is and what he wants. What is his name and what is his son's name? Ah, surely you know. No, you don't. Let me tell you about him. Verse 5. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you, and you be found a liar. Every word, every jot, every little marking of God's word proves true. It will be proven true if it's not proven true already. Every one of them. He is a shield, a protector, a refuge, the picture of one who hides in a rock formation for protection. You go there and you find refuge and peace and protection from this world and from some of your own struggles. And the warning is don't add to his words lest he rebuke you and you be found out to be a liar. Verse 7, two things I ask of you, Lord, two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. There's a plea from a believer's heart. I'm asking you for two things. Don't deny them, please, before I die. They're good things. Verse 8, remove, from, remove far from me falsehood and lying. Now, why would he ask that? Who cares? Who cares? Who cares? Uh, oftentimes, we run into people who don't care. They're not beyond lying and falsehood. They're not beyond it. It gets them ahead. If it gets them ahead, if they're under pressure, they'll do what they have to do. But this godly man says, remove from me falsehood and lying, evidence of belief. He's asking the Lord and pleading with him to give him this as a gift. Well, how do you get there? How do you get there? He says, okay, give me neither poverty nor riches, something in between. Don't make me so poor that I think too much about money and possessions, but don't make me so rich that I think too much about money and possessions. Sometimes I, I uh, travel in Wisconsin to visit a church uh, in Sturgeon Bay, and you may know Door County is that beautiful county in, in northeastern Wisconsin, and I'm riding down what they call um, uh, uh, the parkway. Uh, it's it's uh, along the lake, and along the lake on this side on my left as I'm riding, I'm remembering this now on my left, it's called Bayside Drive, and there are houses there like you would not believe. They are immense they're right on the water, absolutely gorgeous. And I remember saying to the Lord, boy, Lord, I'm glad I don't live there. Boy, am I glad, because you know what? Who needs Jesus? I wake up in the morning, the sun is out, the sun is rising, it's beautiful. I've got all the comforts I could ever ask for. I've got immense wealth, which distracts me from thinking of things eternal and permanent. That's all going to burn. It doesn't matter how beautiful it is. It's all going to burn, but it's a distraction. Who needs Jesus? I've got everything I need. Besides that, those who don't have it, I'm better than them. He says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Don't make me the extremes, please, on either side. Just give me what, feed me with the food that is needful for me, what I need. Why? In verse 9, well, if not, I'll be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Who needs Jesus? Who is the Lord? I don't know him. Who needs him? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Profane is a, a, a grabbing and holding it for yourself. I'm going to profane the name of God. I don't care about him. I'm grabbing his glory and I'm cl clutching it for myself. God really cares about his name. Now, we're believers here. Most of us here know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. This should be a warning to us. Romans 2, 24, Paul says, Because of you... 
The name of the Lord is blasphemed all day long. It's held in contempt and ridicule. Those Christians, look at those Christians. Ha, ha, ha. And God says, ah, that really, that really bothers him. That makes him angry. Remember 2 Samuel 12, 14, when David committed the sin with Bathsheba and uh, they became pregnant, and the Lord said, because by this action you have caused the Gentiles to blaspheme or to hold me in derision, that child's going to die. You, David, have caused this. My name is not to be trifled with. And that's exactly what this writer in Proverbs 30 is concerned about. Don't let me, Lord, have too much or too little. Help me, Lord, to understand my need of you. Otherwise, I will profane the name of my God. My God. So how do you gain wisdom? You acknowledge your natural condition and your situation. How do I get it? How do I understand it? Verses 4 through 9. You recognize and see and understand and live in accordance with God's awesomeness. Question 3 from verses 10 to 17. How do I know if I'm living in wisdom? How can I see it? I may think I'm a smart person. It's got nothing to do with smarts. It's got to do with, remember, skill for living. How do I know if I'm living in, wi- in wisdom? The answer, self-awareness and separation from the world's ways. Separation among Christians is not such a popular idea these days. Sometimes we think we can live as we like and not have a, an attitude of separation from what the world entertains itself with and how it thinks and how it views life. We think we can dabble in that or participate in that and it will be fine. Well, it won't be fine. It's not fine. It's not good for your heart and soul. Let's look at this. Again, how do I know I'm living in wisdom? You have self-awareness of your condition and you separate from the world's ways. Let's start in verse 10. Do not slander a servant to his master lest he curse you and you be held guilty. Slander. Well, what is slander? Uh, Slander is spoken defamation. Libel is written defamation. Defamation is a um, a ruinous uh, series of words and sentences that destroy a person's reputation. Uh, uh, It's either false or when you say it, you don't care if it's true or false. Do not slander a servant. Really, the, the word is slave. Sometimes the translators protect us from words that are rather inflammatory. And they use words like servant. We'll see another example in a few verses. Uh, But the real word is slave. Do not slander a slave who's serving his master. Don't do that. Don't speak defamation against that slave because you'll be held guilty. Lest he curse you and you be held guilty. Don't hurt yourself. If you sin through defamation, through spoken defamation, you'll hurt yourself. Skill for living. Self-awareness. Am I loose with my lips? Am I loose with attacking people and accusing people and speaking badly of them on the side? Don't do that. If you do that, that's foolish. It's demonstrating a lack of skill in living, lack of wisdom. How about verse 11? Here's a series of statements, uh, uh, verses 11 through 14, that talk about there are those who do this, there are those who do that. He's talking in the plural, those. It's a generation of people. He's not talking about 15 people here off to the side. He's talking about the tendencies that happen when generations of people live this life. There's a tendency, there's a, 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 a spirit of the age, as they say. So when we say those, think about a generation of people. And that's where we get the concept of separation. We are not to be like the world. We need to be separate from and not do what they do. So if you're living like the world, as we hear it here and see it here, well, that's foolishness. How do I know if I'm living wisely? You avoid these things. Verse 11. There are those, 
who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers. It's a dangerous place to be. I know it's, we think automatically of maybe teenagers, but if you've got older parents, if you're a grown adult in your 30s, 40s, whatever you might be, and your, parents are, and your parents are still around, be careful how you speak to them. The fifth commandment, of course, as you know, says that we must honor our father and mother, that it may be well with us. Honor our parents. There are those in this generation, there are a bunch of those, the tendency is to curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers. Here's verse 12. There are those who clean, there are, I'm sorry, there are those who are clean in their own eyes. Mm, proud. They're clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. Now, this is where the, this is where the uh, editors and translators are protecting us. You first read this, you think, well, they're dirty, you know, they need a shower, they're dusty. No, no. It's very, very descriptive. It's human waste. Not trash that you take out on Sunday. It's excrement. Look, the Lord said it. I didn't. I'm just telling you what it says. This is how disgusting it is. This person who is so clean in their own eyes, they are covered in their own filth. It's disgusting before God. Their pride is disgusting. It's the same in God's eyes as walking around in that condition. Verse 13. There are those, continuing, how lofty are their eyes, how high their eyelids lift, Oh, isn't that the world? There are those who, whose teeth are swords, whose fangs are knives, to devour the poor from off of the earth, the needy from among mankind, targeting the weakest and the most vulnerable in your world. Targeting the weast, weakest and most vulnerable, not leaving them alone even. They are targeting them to damage and destroy them. That's the world. There are those whose teeth are swords looking to damage and kill those who are lesser in terms of appearance and the most vulnerable. Thinking about unborn children, perhaps? Are we? Maybe we should. The needy from among mankind, the poor, those who are defenseless and weak. That's what the world does. Self-awareness and separation from the world's ways. Remember, that's how I know if I'm living in wisdom. Don't do these things. Verse 15. I know we're running through this fast, but we've got quite a bit to cover. The leech has two daughters. Give and give, they cry. Hmm. The leech. My dad used to have leeches in our bathroom. <laughs> I can't read this verse without thinking about my dad. And uh, I remember showing my friends the bathroom where they, hey, look at these, these creatures. You know, I show them the jar. There's these disgusting creatures in their leeches. And um, I remember as a boy, when we walked in the city of Chicago on the south side, we go past a pharmacy, and I can still picture in my mind's eye an enormous jar. At least it looked to me that to be enormous when I was about eight. And uh, it was, the water was hued blue, and there were leeches in there. It was a pharmacy. And I remember saying to my dad, what in the world? Is that cool? You know, I thought it was great. But what he did is he used leeches. He used to get boils. He used leeches, and he's, he'd pop them on a boil. It was pretty gross. But he'd pop, them, he'd pop them on the boil, and what would they do? They'd say, give, 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 until what? Until they were filled with whatever gunk it was that they were, they were drawing, okay? This is, hey, this is God's word, okay? <laughs> so I know everyone's going, ew, ew, okay, fine. I'll stop. 
But I, I, remember, I remember thinking, my goodness, this is amazing. Look at how this works. He pops this thing on here, and it goes away. And the, this leech is like three times its size. It's like, it looks like it's going to pop. Never satisfied. They fall off because they're so exhausted, like they've just eaten turkey dinner, right? Thanksgiving's coming. So they cry, give me some more, give me some more. Give me. That's what people do. When they're not thinking about the needs of others, they want themselves to be filled. They don't care about you. That's the world. Give me, give me. They cry for more and more until they can't take anymore. And they fall off and still they're not satisfied. The second part of verse 15. Three things are never satisfied. Four say, four never say enough. Never satisfied and never say enough. I've got enough stuff. I would say to those people in those houses that we talked about on, uh, uh, in Wisconsin, how many burgers can you eat exactly? I mean, you've got 12 burgers. I mean, I've got 12 burgers. I've got plenty of food. What do you have, 5,000 burgers? They never say enough. Just a little more stuff is what I want. 16, Sheol. These are things that are, that are never satisfied, and they never say enough. I've got enough. Sheol. Sheol is a, a little complex term. It just means death. In our, in our context, for our understanding, simply enough, it just means death. Death is never satisfied. People die all the time, as we know. The sheol, or death, is never satisfied. The barren womb, the woman who's never given birth, who wants to give birth and have children, the barren womb is never satisfied because she's feeling like... And by the way, Jewish people, Hebrew women, would understand this in particular because in their culture, children were immensely important, unlike our culture. In the Hebrew world, in the Jewish mind, children were so crucially important. That's why the scriptures say, happy is the man whose quiver is filled with children. The barren womb, the land never satisfied with water. The Hebrew mind would understand this because in the Middle East, understand it better than us, because in the Middle East, it might rain, but you'd never notice it after a while because it dries up because the land is so dry, it sucks up the water. It's never satisfied in saying enough. I've got enough water. It's just never satisfied. And fire... Also, as an example of this, it never says enough. Fire never says, hey, I've got enough. You throw another log in that fire and other incendiary things, and it'll burn who knows how long, maybe forever if you had enough fuel. Remember, he's watching God's world, and he's saying, huh, how do I know if I'm living in wisdom? Some people never say enough. They're never satisfied, like Sheol or death, a barren womb, and land that is not filled with water at all, and fire. Don't be like that. Verse 17, we go back to parenting and children again. The eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. Okay, that's God talking, okay? That's pretty rugged language. Now, here's the point. You know, the Old Testament law, if you disrespected your mother and father, you could be killed. A bad end awaits those who mock their parents. That's the point. That's foolishness. It's not wise. It's not good. It's really evil. The eye that mocks a father and scorns, scorns, I don't care what you say, mother. I just don't care. I scorn you. You'll be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. That's a bad picture. You don't need to go any more detail of that. You get the picture. You get the understanding. How do I know I'm living in wisdom? Through self, uh, self-awareness, harsh, tough evaluation of yourself, and separation from the world's ways. Remember the general, the first um, uh, uh, statement of our argument is that a stark assessment drives wisdom. 
The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The next steps are stark assessments of your own condition before him. The next question, how do I know if I'm living in wisdom? Same question, different answer in verses 18 all the way to 31. Thoughtful observation and wonder at God's world. Not just creation, but everything about God's world. A thoughtful observation and wonder at how he's done things as the economy. Thoughtful people understand and say, you know what, I could never do that. I don't understand that. It's too wonderful for me. I need God. I need to understand him. I need to do my best to get a grip on my condition before him. And what do I need to do to be right before him? Verse 18, thoughtful observation and wonder at God's world. He says, three things are too wonderful for me, that, and four I do not understand. Now, women, listen up. The way of an eagle in the sky... I don't, that's too wonderful for me. I don't understand it. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a virgin. So I first read this and I thought, what in the world is he talking about? Okay, here's what I think, here's what I, I'm very certain he's talking about. The mystery of movement, of processes. It's a mystery of processes. When you're watching an eagle in the sky, there's a process. He go, he's going somewhere. Maybe he's going after some prey. He's got a way of doing it. You don't know where he's going. He knows where he's going, probably, maybe. But he goes, and it's, it's rather hard to understand where he's going. The second example, the way of a serpent on a rock, a snake on a rock. He's slithering along. Maybe it's a huge rock. You don't know, is he going to go left? Is he going to go right? Is he going to fall off? Is he going to go forward? We don't know where he's going. The way of an eagle in the sky, they leave no trail. You don't know where he's going. The way of a serpent on a rock, he leaves no trail because the rock is a hard surface. He's got no trail, and you don't know where he's going. The way of a ship on the high seas, not a flat sea, but a billowing sea with lots of swells in the water. A very short trail, but especially in a billowing sea, there's hardly any trail. And you don't know exactly, even the captain of the ship maybe doesn't even realize where he's going. He's being tossed all over the ocean. So a lack of... Um, a trail, a lack of understanding of where he's going, and oh, by the way, then the fourth one, the way of a man with a virgin. So women, if you're thinking about your man or somebody you're interested in, you're saying, I don't understand this guy. I don't know where he's going. I don't know what he's doing in our relationship. I can't tell. I don't understand him. I know this is true. Take heart and read Proverbs thirty nineteen. It's okay. He probably doesn't know where he's going either. Or what he's doing, he's flying by the seat of his pants, perhaps. And the man is watching the relationships between men and women, and he's saying, I don't get it. I don't understand how a man who's interested in a woman operates. I don't get it. It's very mysterious. It's very strange. And we don't know where he's going or how he gets there. The way of a man with a virgin. The way of a ship on a high sea. The way of a serpent on a rock. The way of an eagle in the sky. Wonder at God's world. Thoughtful observation, watching and thinking. Thoughtful observation about God's world. Verse 20, sometimes Proverbs throws in verses or throws in thoughts that may be either, and oh, by the way, kinds of things. It doesn't really seem to fit. Now, this may be one of those. Verse 20, this is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. Now, we know very well that men do this. We're not just restricting this to adulteress. You can't just think, oh, only women are guilty of this. If you read the scriptures, you know very well men are as guilty of this as women are. But he says, this is the way they act. They eat a meal that they shouldn't be eating. She has no right to eat this meal. He has no right to eat this meal. That person eats the meal, wipes the mouth, and says, yeah, I've done no wrong. Foolishness. 
foolishness, there's going to be price to pay. A price will pay when you're acting so foolishly and contrary to God's ways and God's requirements. There may be a picture here of uh, God's people as a bride. We know God's people are, are the bride of Christ. The church is the bride. He is the bridegroom. This may be a picture of uh, men and women relationships as it pictures in the church. Verse 21, under three things, the earth trembles. Under four, it cannot bear up. Remember, he's making observations. He's saying, I think, I see this, and here's what my conclusions are. A slave, when he becomes king, three things, the earth trembles, four things, it can't bear up. A slave, when he becomes king, a fool, when he is filled with food, an unloved woman, when she gets a husband, and a maidservant, when she displaces her mistress. Hmm. These things are amazing. They make the earth tremble, and the earth cannot bear up on these things. These are such astounding developments in life, he's saying. It's astounding. It's amazing. I don't know what to do with it. A slave, when he becomes king, it's expectations, or not expectations, they are um, occurrences, elevations, changes in life that are like earthquakes. Who expects a slave to become a king? Nobody. Nobody. And when a slave becomes king, it's like an earthquake in his life and the lives of others too. What do you do when you're a slave owned by someone else and suddenly you're in charge of everything? Oh, it depends on the slave, doesn't it? It depends on the character of the person who's had this massive sea change in his life. Under three things, the earth trembles for it cannot bear up. A slave when he becomes king, a fool when he's filled with food. What is a fool usually interested in? A foolish person who doesn't think about God usually is interested in his physical needs. I'm hungry, whatever it might be, whatever the list is. That's what he's thinking about. Now, a fool, when he's filled with food, is no longer thinking about physical things. He's thinking, what other trouble can I get into? Stay away from that guy because he's filled with food. He's satisfied, but he's going to be looking for other things to do to make trouble for others ordinarily. A fool, when he's filled with food, an unloved woman, when she gets a husband. A woman who has been alone, unloved, when she gets a husband, it's like an earthquake in her life. It's hard to understand how these things work and how God works in these lives. A maidservant, when she displaces her mistress, the woman of the house, this is the picture, the woman of the house is displaced, she's out, and now her servant in the house becomes the head of the house. Unexpected occurrences, big occurrences like earthquakes. A maidservant, when she displaces her mistress, doesn't just get a better job. She's actually now the woman of the house and has other maidservants to watch over the house in her stead. Remember, the writer is just observing God's world and God's economy. He says, this is pretty amazing. Thoughtful observation. Verse 24. Four things on earth. These are the numeric proverbs continuing. Four things on earth are small, but they are exceedingly wise. By the way, none of the four are people. Creatures can be wise. That's another defense of the argument that it is skill for living. Creatures, he's not talking about people here. He's talking about creatures, little tiny creatures such as ants. They're tiny, but they are exceedingly wise. They have under uh, exceedingly um, able skills. They are skilled creatures, skill for living. Here's, here's the list, verse 25. Ants, ants are a people not strong, yet they provide their food in the summer. They're diligent. They're diligent. They work and they're diligent. 
Thoughtful observation, wonder, take a lesson from the ants. Be diligent. That's what he's saying. Look at the ants, how they work. They're diligent. They're tiny, but they're diligent. They have skill for living. Rock badgers. Well, what's a rock badger? Um, also known as conies. Uh, it, it's a Middle Eastern animal that has, uh, it's like the size of a rabbit. Pretty defenseless. They don't have claws. They're very soft, furry creatures like rabbits, but they have little suctions on their feet. And you'll see why those are useful. Rock badgers are not are a people not mighty, yet they make their homes in the cliffs. How does a rock badger, a coney, get into a, the cliffs? How does he get up there? Well, he's got these feet that God gave him. God gave this creature little feet that allows that creature to climb up and get to the cliffs and tuck into the clefts of the rocks of the cliffs. Perseverance. Diligence of ants, perseverance of the rock badger. They persevere. They've got to climb up these cliffs. They're little creatures, as I say, like rabbits. They're not going to pole vault up there. They have to crawl up there. Scary, scary, but they persevere and they get where they can make their homes in the cliffs and they're safe. They're way up there and they're safe. Perseverance of the rock badger. How about the, in verse 27, locusts? They have no king, yet all of them march in rank. Locusts march in rank. They know their role. They are assigned a certain role. They have no king, but they somehow, God has put it in their teeny little locust heads that they are to do certain things, and they do them. They know their role, and they play it. That's a good lesson for us. Here's my assignment. I'm going to do this assignment. I'm not going to be jealous, uh, uh, longing that someone else might be displaced, and I can take that role. Here's my assigned role. I'm going to play it. Locusts have no, have no king, but they, uh, they march in rank. They have roles. The lizard you can take in your hands, yet it is in king's palaces. A lowly creature like a lizard, he's shrewd. A lizard can flatten himself pretty well. They can move around. They're not uh, attractive creatures. Uh, They're not impressive creatures, and yet they live among the best housing at the time that this was written. They live in king's palaces. They're shrewd. God's world, you look at people and you, you, you look at the animal kingdom and you see diligence pays off, perseverance pays off, knowing your role and playing it pays off, and shrewdness pays off. Shrewdness is not ungodliness or manipulation. It's just seeing and understanding and moving accordingly, like a lizard living in a king's palace. He doesn't belong there. He's living there anyway. Verse 29 Again, we're answering the question, how do I know if I'm living in wisdom, thoughtful observation, and wonder at God's world, and these different adjectives that describe what it looks like. And if you're living this way, you've got some good wisdom going on. Not perfection, but direction. Verse 29, three things are, are stately in their tread, and four are stately in their stride. Strength is presented in how you carry yourself. How you carry yourself. Listen to what he says. The lion which is the mightiest among beasts and does not turn back before any, a strutting rooster. A strutting rooster. I, I don't know if I would have included that in the list, but this is God's word. A strutting rooster, a male chicken. He's strutting around like he runs the, everything around in his world. Maybe he does. The he-goat, the male goat, runs around, struts around. They're stately in their tread and stride. And a king, this is the only person in the list, a king whose army is with him. A king by himself is not nearly as stately as a king with his army. He can't strut around like a lion. He can, but nobody's going to be terribly impressed. 
When he's with his army, though, he's the king. He's in charge. He's the one that people look to. These things are amazing. Beyond understanding, I'm wondering, the author wonders at God's world and how it works. So, the final question. So would you rather gain wisdom or would you rather languish as a fool? Now, don't be quick to say, oh, I obviously want wisdom. How is it, let me ask you a question. How is it that Solomon, you know Solomon was the wisest man in the world, right? He was the wisest of the wise. He was renowned for his wisdom. You can check that out in the scriptures. How is it that a man who is as wise as Solomon did so many stupid things? How is it? Sometimes I've wondered at that. Well, Solomon did so many stupid things because wisdom, skill for living, is not the same as godliness. You can have all kinds of skill, but if you decide to be a fool, you'll reject wisdom and live the fool. Nobody wakes up and says, I think today I'm going to ruin my marriage. I think today I'll do something really stupid and get arrested. So would you rather gain wisdom or languish as a fool? If you reject wisdom, you will know pain. It's axiomatic. It is axiomatic. One comes, one comes after the other. This is what the text says. Verse 32. If you have been foolish, exalting yourself. Look at me, look at me. That's foolishness. Don't do that. If you have been foolish, exalting yourself. Or if you have been devising evil, put your hand on your mouth. If you've been devising evil, conniving, plotting, what can I do to get that person demoted? What can I do to displace that person at the workplace? I want to displace that person in this spot and have me be promoted. If you've been doing that, if you've been foolish doing that, Put your hand on your mouth. In other words, stop talking. Stop talking. Put your hand over your mouth because you've got nothing good to say, nothing wise to say. Learn to stop talking. Why? Well, because you're going to end up hurting yourself. Pressing milk produces curds. One leads to the other. Pressing the nose produces blood. Pressing the nose. I can remember one of my kids when they were babies, um, I was holding him, and he squeezed my nose, and he stuck his finger up my nose and scraped the inside of my nose. He squeezed, and then he scraped. He was like two months old. This kid made me howl in pain, and he defeated me right there. He could have taken all my money. He could have done anything he wanted with me. Look, pressing the nose produces blood. It's axiomatic. You do this, this is what's going to happen. You press the nose, you'll produce blood. You press anger, and strife will happen. Strife between brothers and sisters. Anger between brothers and sisters, fighting, strife, causing pain in the church or elsewhere. It's axiomatic. It will happen. It's promised. It's promised. Reject wisdom and no pain. If you reject wisdom, you will know pain. Don't, don't even question it. It's going to happen. So would you rather have God's wisdom or languish as a fool? Well, nobody really wants to languish on the fool, but there has to be a decision made in advance of what we're going to do when opportunities for foolishness come our way. So, Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. How do I go from that first step of fearing the Lord, trembling in fear of him, to the next steps? That's a stark assessment to drive you to wisdom, to drive you to understand who God is and live in his economy. So where is their hope? I can't live like this all the time. I don't. I wouldn't lie to you. Where is the hope? 
and all of the struggles in our lives, all the imperfections and sin patterns, the world, the flesh, the devil, everything that taunts us and makes us want to go our own way. The hope is in Jesus. There's no terror before God if you know Jesus. There's a certain fear that comes from knowing the perfection and amazement of God, but there is what is known as a filial fear, F-I-L-I-A-L, filial, relationship fear. It's not that you're afraid of God so much as you are so amazed that that God who is so terrifying might be interested in me as a son or as a daughter through Christ, through the work of the Logos of the Trinity on the cross and in the resurrection. There's a filial fear that says, wow, that's who God is, and he wants me in relationship with him. I think I'll live for him. I think I'll receive the payment that Christ gives to me. I'll receive it, and I'm going to live for him because he's worthy, because it's amazing that he would want to be my Savior and my Father. Sons and daughters of the great King who loves you. Let me press that home with, and we could, we could um, speak of any number of scriptures about this principle about sonship and daughterhood through Christ. But let's, let's focus on uh, Romans 8, verses 15 in closing, verses uh, 15 to 17. Listen to what Paul says to the Roman believers to rightly assess their, their uh, relationship with the Lord. And this is us if we know Jesus. He says, you, have not, you did not receive the spirit of slavery. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear as if you didn't know Jesus. You didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, Daddy. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This world is rejecting Jesus. Every day you see it. And they reject you because they hated him first. That's biblical as it can be. But we have confidence knowing that we are heirs through Christ of the heavenly blessing. And if we don't want that, we have to understand the value and the wonder of the Lord and receive the gift he's given us and use it for his glory. This life will be over in a flash. And then we get to be with him forever. Live for him today. A stark assessment drives wisdom. Let's remember that principle out of Proverbs 30. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for these precious brothers and sisters, people in the church today, in this, in this building today. I thank you for your wisdom, for your, your, your desire to show to us what you are about. Because your wisdom shows how you want us to live. It's your economy of life. Help us to live in accordance with your economy. Not our own ways, our own desires, whatever we think is best, but what you think is best. And you teach us as a heavenly father, as a father who loves us and wants what's best for us. Help us, Lord, to listen and to follow as best we understand, humbly, without pride, without insisting on going our own way. Because if we endure, we will reap. We thank you for your life, Lord, to us. We thank you in Jesus' great name. Amen. Would you stand as we respond?